65 reads to the chief musician a psalm of David, a song. Praise is awaiting you, O God, in Zion, and to you the vow shall be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you all flesh will come. Iniquities prevail against me as for our transgressions. You will provide atonement for them. Blessed is the man you choose and calls to approach you that he may dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your temple, of your holy temple. Lord, help us to walk in that satisfaction of you. And everything the world throws at us, help us to say it's truly you we are satisfied with. Open our eyes that we may see wondrous things from your law this morning, that we may not only hear this, but live this and practice this, to be a light for you in all ways. And we say thank you. Let your word be alive and active in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Psalm 65 and Psalm 66 this morning. Psalm 65 and Psalm 66. Continuing our study here through the book of Psalms, the way I teach through this is we go to the psalm that's up next, and as I read and pray through it, kind of just start thinking about all the other different psalms in the Bible and see if there's any connecting thoughts between this psalm and the other psalms that we're doing. So sometimes we'll do a psalm, and there's a psalm 100 psalms ahead that connects very nicely, and we have done that. But here this morning in Psalm 65 and Psalm 66, you have two psalms that just come together very, very nicely. Please note verse 65, it says it's a psalm of David. Psalm 66 does not have an author. Very similar, though, and they connect, once again, very nicely. Um, simply a song is what it says. A psalm of David, a song. Charles Spurgeon says this. It's a psalm and a song. He called them lyrical poems that can be sung or spoken. And they're very, very nice done. And you will see the similarities here between them. Psalm 65 and 66 both have a similarity of praise being a central theme. The idea of God's house, God's temple... The idea of earth, not just Israel, but the entire earth. The idea of the awesomeness of God and the idea of vows being repaid. So what I'd like you to do is if your Bible has both psalms on the same page set, you can just go back and forth. If not, you have to flip your pages and your wrist will become very tired by the end of the study. But Psalm 65 and 66 go together. The key theme from Psalm 65, we just read it, is verse 4. Blessed is the man you choose and calls to approach you that he may dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, of your holy temple. And then the theme from Psalm 66 is verse 4, the idea of praise. All the earth shall worship you and sing praises to you. They shall sing praises to your name, Selah. With those two themes, I am praising God and I am satisfied in God. And that is how we're going to start out our study. So look at the first word of Psalm 65, praise. What a great start. Praise is awaiting you, O God. Can we understand how great our God is that we just start out in praise? 
Wouldn't that be amazing if we would just stop and realize what praise is? It's just stopping and realizing the majesty and the power of God. Look in Psalm 66 with me, verses 1 and 2, where it says, Make a joyful shout to God, all the earth. Sing out the honor of his name. Make his praise glorious. Then look at verse 4, same chapter. All the earth shall worship you and sing praises to you. They shall sing praises to your name, Selah. In verse 8, same chapter. And bless our God, you peoples. Make the voice of his praise be heard. Praise and worship is about stopping and realizing who God is. And this is something that's difficult for our society. It says in Hebrews that we're supposed to bring the sacrifice of praise. It's a sacrifice to stop thinking about me, stop thinking about what fulfills me and what brings me joy and satisfaction and while just stopping and praising God. And we have this idea of what praise and worship should be. It should be exciting. It should be fun. This is what we want. We want the concert feel. I pay money to go to concerts. I drive hours to go to concerts. I wait in line for that concert. And I like the concert so much, I buy the shirt of the band that I saw. And this is what I'm expecting. And then I come into worship at the typical church, and it is nothing like the concerts that I go to. So then what happens is we as churches then stop and say, well, then let's make our worship like that. So when people leave worship, they stop and they say words like powerful and fun and exciting and let's add the lights and the smoke and everything else that we can. And we've completely lost the aspect of praise of God. It's just praise of God. And this is in this. Praise is awaiting you, O oh God. That's a very interesting word. Praise is awaiting you. If you look in some other different translations, like the NASB or the, or the Young's literal translation, it says this, NASB, there will be silence before you. Or Young's literal translation, to thee, silence, praise. How simple is that? To thee, silence, praise. We don't like silence. Silence is awkward. Now, in the privacy of my own time of prayer, I, I like the time of silence. You read a passage, and before you start prayer, I'll have this tendency when I'm at home and it's just me, I'll just sit, take a deep sigh, and just stop. Two, meditate on who the Lord is. Silence. If we do that in a public setting, it becomes very, very awkward. People don't know how to handle silence in a public setting. We become very fidgety. Noises start to bother us. There's a song that we sing out here that I watched a live performance of one time, and before they did it, it was just a simple acoustic guitar, but the man got down on his knees and just was silent. A long silence before the song even started. That is literally what it's saying there in verse 1. Is to thee silence. Praise. I think we've lost that in the 21st century hustle and bustle of what we expect things to do. We need flash, we need excitement, we need everything, but yet when I see God saying, sometimes I just need to sit in silence and focus on who the Lord is. What a great way to start this out. Tozer makes a point about this. He goes, with our loss of the sense of majesty has come the further loss of religious awe and consciousness of the divine presence. We have lost our spirit of worship and our ability to withdraw inwardly to meet God in adoring silence. Modern Christianity is simply not producing the kind of Christian who can appreciate or experience the life in the Spirit. The words, be still and know that I am God, mean next to nothing to the self-confident, bustling worshiper in the middle period of the 20th century. Now, there is times of exuberant praise. We see that in Psalm 66. 
Let's make sure we get the full counsel of God's word. But at this passage right here in Psalm 65, he is teaching us the praise of silence, of calmness, and stopping and realizing it is not about me walking away from worship saying, oh, that was good. That was fun. That was exciting. Was God glorified? Did I, as a finite human being, grasp a depth of the infinite God and stop and say, Lord, praise to you. There's a danger at worshiping at the altar of worship when we're supposed to understand that it's just the Lord. So what a great start here of just praise to God and understanding that he is, that we then praise him. Now, look what also goes on to, though. It talks about the vow. To you, the vow shall be performed. Vows don't mean as as much to us as they do back to the Jewish times. They just don't. Vows back then were huge. Deuteronomy 23 says this, When you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and it will be sent to you. To make a vow, to make a promise to God, and not fulfill that vow was a sin. That was a huge deal. This is the theme in Psalm 66 as well. Just jump ahead to look at verse 13. I will go into your house with burnt offerings. I will pay you my vows which my lips have uttered and my mouth has spoken. When I was in trouble, I will offer you burnt sacrifices of fat animals with the sweet aroma of rams. I will offer bulls with goats, Selah. He's saying, I made a promise to you, God, and I'm going to fulfill that. Now, I just need to stop right here and make a real quick practical point. Have you ever made a promise or vow to God? If so, you need to fulfill it. That's the reality of it. We talk about foxhole faith. That, Lord, if you just get me out of this, I promise you, be careful of that. Lord, if you just, just, just help me feel better here, I promise you. Lord, if you just take care of this job, if you just, I promise you. You see a little bit of that in Psalm 66, where he talked about in verse 14, which my lips have uttered and my mouth has spoken when I was in trouble. David is saying, I was in trouble and I made a promise, I made a vow to you. And I need to make sure that I keep it. If you have made a vow or a promise to God, he remembers that. And if it's something you cannot do, then I suggest you go to him in confession and repentance and say, Lord, I spoke rashly. I spoke hastily. And let this carry on to everyday vernacular when you speak to people. Jesus warned us about this in the Sermon on the Mount. I let your yes be yes and your no be no. I just encourage you, if you're one of those people that are constantly saying, I swear to God, please stop. If you have to tell me that you're so honest and sincere that I swear to God I'll do it, then what makes me think about your personality. Because every other time, does that mean you won't? Jesus has simply said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. You don't have to make big promises. You don't have to make grandiose statements. If you say you're going to do it, just do it. If I have to pack back it up with that much verbiage, maybe my character shows that I don't do what I vow and promise I'm going to do. And so there's a simple little point in there that I'm going to do the vow, but it shows the sincerity we have. If God, I told you I will, then I will. It's the honor and glory given to him because we're starting out with praise. And I just encourage you, in your time of prayer, start off with praise. Now, does that mean every prayer starts off with praise? I've used this example with you before. Years ago, Dawn and I were out driving, we hit a patch of ice, and we did a 180. The prayer was simple, and I remember it to this day, was Jesus, help us. That's how it was, Jesus, help us. I did not start out with, oh, Lord, great and gracious God, maker of ice and asphalt, 
go before it. No, I didn't. By that time, we were already wrecked. Jesus, help us. But I encourage you that you would have a deeper time of prayer where you maybe work through a prayer sheet, a prayer request list, and you pray for the different people that have asked you for prayer, health concerns, marriages concerns, salvation, etc., and that you would start off your days of prayer with praise. Jesus set that example. If you go back to the example he set of the Lord's Prayer, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That's praise. Lord, let your name be hallowed. Let your name be praised. You see the beauty of this. Let's start off with praise, which then takes us to verse 2. O you who hear prayer, now I can go to him in prayer. I've set the tone of praise, of understanding who God is, how big he is. Let's enter his gates with thanksgiving and enter his courts with praise, as the psalm says. This is why we start off with worship before we go into a teaching. It's supposed to prepare our heart to stop and say, I praise you. So now we get to go into prayer. Now think about prayer. How amazing it is that, that we can pray. But it's even more amazing that we can pray to the creator of the universe. It's amazing that the creator of the universe hears our prayers. Verse 2, you who hear prayer, me as a sinless man, that went wrong. Me as a sinful man can approach a sinless God. Let me make sure that's clear. We as sinful men can approach sinless God. That's amazing. That's the beauty of grace, as we just sang. Hebrews 4 talks about this. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. There's a throne of grace that I can go to for grace. Grace, we talked about this at length on Wednesday night. It's a difficult word to define, but it's the gift. It's the special favor that God gives us. We cannot earn it. We do not deserve it. But through grace, we can approach him through what Christ did. So therefore, it is amazing that I can pray, but what's even more amazing is that the creator of the universe hears and responds. Sinful man can approach sinless God. But when it comes to prayer, jump ahead to 66, please. Look what it says here, starting in verse 17. I cried to him with my mouth, and he was extolled with my tongue. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. But certainly God has heard me. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Now they add a few more elements here to this. Verse 17, I can cry to God. He was extolled with my tongue. Extolled is a really interesting word. A lot of times we just kind of consider it praise, but it's a different word than praise. It's a much deeper word than praise. So I can cry out to him. I can praise him. But look at 18. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. We've established praise. We've established prayer. There's also an element of confession with this as well. Can you go with me to Isaiah 59, please? Isaiah 59. If you think back to before we do communion, there's a time of self-examination, it says in Corinthians, before we take of communion. Think back to, once again, the example of the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts. There's a time of confession when it comes to that. There's a time of searching and saying, Lord, are there things that I'm wrong on? Psalm 139, search me, O Lord, try me, see if there's any iniquity in me. Lord, do you see sin in me that I have become blind and deceived to? Because sin causes a separation in our relationship and fellowship with God. Now let me explain this a little bit deeper here. I am God's child And I believe that I have the assurance of that. 1 John is a wonderful book on the assurance of our salvation in the Lord. 
as his child, when I do wrong, when I commit sin, that causes a break in the relationship between the Father and me. I'm not saying I lose my salvation, but there becomes a break where there is not the closeness that there could be. Same idea with marriage. Marriage given in Ephesians 5 is a picture of the husband and wife. It's supposed to be a picture of us and Christ. So therefore, if I snap at dawn and I'm harsh to her, and I come up 30 seconds later and say, hey, give me a hug, she says, uh-uh, no way. There has been a break in the fellowship and the relationship. We're still married. We still have a covenant. But yet, in that relationship now, because of my harshness, my sin, it's caused now a break in that. It's the same thing with God. So all of a sudden, I come to him in prayer. And God says, hold on here, son. causing a break in this. And it's a very, very important thing for us to understand that this sin that we know that we have committed, we need to go to God and confess that, agree with him that it's sin and ask for repentance. This is a very important thing, and it's especially given to us men. If you look in 1 Peter, God tells us men as the spiritual leaders of the house, when we mistreat our wives, that hurts our prayer life. So men, if you find your prayer life being extremely dry, how are you doing with your wife? If you find your prayer life being extremely dry, like God's not hearing, is there iniquity, both men and women, in our lives? There's been times where maybe Dawn and I were not on the same page in life, and I have left to go to a Bible study, and I'm getting ready to go into that Bible study, and I realize, how silly is this? I'm going to go in and try to teach these guys, pray with these guys, and I'm not right with Dawn, and I've called her before in my car saying, hey, listen, I love you, and we need to make this right. Because I'm getting ready to go in there and pray and lead, and I need to make sure you and I are okay. Isaiah 59 takes, talks about this. Look at verse 1. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. Your hands are defiled with blood, your fingers with iniquity, your lips have spoken lies, your tongue has muttered perversity. God's not hearing this. Stay in Isaiah. Jump back to Isaiah chapter 1. Carrying this same theme. Isaiah 1, start in verse 10 with me. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the law. Our God, you people of Gomorrah. He's talking to Israel and referring to them as Sodom and Gomorrah. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this from you, your hand? to trample my courts. Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, and the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity in the sacred meeting. So they're bringing their animals, they're killing their animals, they're doing everything they're supposed to do. And what does he say, verse 13? I cannot endure iniquity. Your sin makes all your sacrifices and your fastings, verse 13, futile. 14. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They are troubled to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eye from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Once again, if you know there's sin in your life, take it to the Lord in confession, and that will affect your prayer life. Look at the order here again. We have praise. After praise, we have prayer, but then we have this idea of iniquity that must be dealt with. We are sinful people approaching a sinless God through grace. But he's also asking us, saying, do not regard sin in your heart. So what do I do then when I feel completely overwhelmed with this sin? Well, look at verse 3. Iniquities prevail against me. As for our transgressions, you will provide atonement for them. Oh, atonement's a beautiful word. 
deep word there. But the NLT says it so simply and so directly. Verse 3 says this, Though we are overwhelmed by our sins, you forgive them all. Oh, I love that. Though we are overwhelmed by our sins, you forgive them all. That's the beauty of grace and mercy in forgiveness. Which then takes us to verse 4, second part of it. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, of your holy temple. The result of this, satisfaction. You ever think about it? When I sin, it shows I'm not satisfied. Isn't that what sin is? It's being unsatisfied? I'm not satisfied with how my flesh feels, so I'm going to go out and do that fleshly desire to satisfy my flesh. I'm angry and upset at you because I don't think you gave me the love and respect I believe I earned and deserved, so I snapped at you because I'm not satisfied with the love and respect you're giving me. I'm not satisfied with my house and my possessions and my pay, so I'm discontent. I'm unsatisfied. So therefore, not being satisfied leads me to sin. Think about that because when I am know who I am in the Lord and I'm satisfied in the Lord, there is no fleshly desire. There's nothing in this world that I want because I'm satisfied with Him. That's the depth of understanding what it means to be satisfied with the Lord. This is what Christ is trying to offer us. Remember back to John 4 where Jesus was talking to the woman at the well where He says, I will give you water and you will never thirst again. And she stops and says, this sounds good. He goes, yeah, you're not getting it. Because you're spending your life jumping from man to man to man. And I can give you something that will satisfy. That's the satisfaction of Christ. I am forgiven and I am satisfied in the Lord. And I praise you because I can pray to you. And now I am satisfied and forgiven. Oh, Lord, let us have this. But did you catch this in verse 4? Blessed is the man you choose and calls to approach you. See, I'm satisfied when I'm approaching God, trying to be as close as I can to Him. But the reality is my flesh doesn't want to be close to Him. So, Lord, bless me by causing me to approach you. Because I'm not going to choose it on my own. Think about this. Just think about the flesh. Do you have this momentary nothing going on in life? What are you going to do? How many of us would just flip the TV on and flip through all the stations? Just try to find something. If we can't find anything, we just go through them again. How many of us will grab our phones and just start looking through headlines because we need to make sure the world hasn't ended? How many of us would go scroll Facebook? We'll just find something to do to fulfill ourselves because why? We're not satisfied. What would happen if we stopped and said, Lord, at that moment, let me grab your word. Let me spend some time in prayer. Let me just be satisfied in you. But the reality is I realize my flesh will not choose that. So Lord, verse 4, calls me to approach you. See, the more I read the Bible, the more I see the free will choice that I have as a man, but the more I see the divine choosing me. And the more I study this out, the more I realize it's not a contradiction. I have the free will choice to approach him, but I have to have the divine choosing to cause me to approach him. And that sounds contradictory, but the more I read and the more I study, the more I realize it is not contradictory in any way whatsoever. Lord, I want more of you. Have me choose more of you. 
Draw me closer to you. Verse 4, blessed is the man you choose and cause to reproach you. If you hear this point right now and you stop and you realize, that's me. I'm not choosing to approach him. In fact, it doesn't cross my mind. Then maybe you need to mark the first part of verse 4 and say, Lord, I want to be the man you choose and I want you to cause me to approach you. Let me desire more of you. So when we put this all together, verse 1, I praise. Verse 2, I pray. Verse 3, I realize my sins have been taken care of. Verse 4, I'm satisfied in you. Finally, verse 5, by awesome deeds and righteousness, you will answer us. O God of our salvation, you are the confidence of all the ends of the earth and of the far off seas. I start to see his awesome deeds because my eyes have been opened. I start to see things. Think back for you that got saved later in life. Before you got saved, the words coincidence, luck, happenstance. After you got saved, you see God's hand moving. What changed? Your eyes were opened. Lord, verse 5, let me see your awesome deeds that you are moving and working. Look at chapter 66. Look at verse 3. Say to God, how awesome are your works. Through the greatness of your power, your enemies shall submit themselves to you. Same chapter. Take a look there at verse 5. Come and see the works of God. He is awesome in his doing towards the sons of men. The repetition of awesome. Real quick, did you notice in verse 3 that if you don't know what to say in praise and worship, it tells you exactly what to say? Here's your line. Say to God, how awesome are your works. But then dwell on that. Dwell on the awesomeness of works. Think about this. Think about how we become desensitized to God moving and working. Our twins right now are about three and a half. And, and I do the morning routine with them. And every morning when we get up, it is wow, awe-inspiring to see the sunrise. Every day we have to stop and look at the sunrise. And if it's a cloudy morning where they don't see the sunrise, they wonder where it went. But every morning the sunrise is all inspiring to them and we have to ooh and ah over it and stand at the window and watch it. Why? Because they're three. I'm 43. Yep, it's the sun. Yep. And then when the evening and it sets and they can see the sunset, we're all inspired again. Because why? They have a childlike faith. How often have we become desensitized to God moving? Oh, wow, I prayed. It got better. Hey, thanks. God moved. There's a guy I know uh, that comes out here that lived over in an area with mountains, and he was telling me one time that he lived in the valley between two sets of mountains. And it wasn't until he moved to northwest Ohio that he really started seeing sunrises and sunsets. The flatness of northwest Ohio was a blessing to him. Because living in the valley... He didn't see the sunrise. He didn't see the sunset. How often do we miss out of the awe-inspiringness of God because we put ourselves in a valley? Wow, the Lord is moving and doing things that are amazing. And because of this awesomeness, look at what we have in verse 5. You who are the confidence of all the ends of the earth. The confidence. Some translations. You are the hope. So since I know, look how this goes together. I praise you, I pray, I'm forgiven, I'm satisfied in you, I see you're awesome, Lord, verse 5. Now I have confidence, now I have hope. Do you realize how much people just want hope in life? They're looking for hope. I've shared with you many times before that, that when I'm going through the checkout line, a great way to start a conversation with somebody is to say, hey, how's your day going? 
No matter how they answer, you got another question to ask them. If they say, my day's going good, I always ask them, well, what makes your day good? If they say, uh-huh, well, what, what would make the day better? I ask them. Nine times out of ten, they oh, if I wasn't at work. Well, sorry to bother you at work. Why? They have no hope. There's no joy. There's no peace. Think of Romans 15, 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. I believe us believers should be the most confident, hope-filled, joy-filled, peace-filled people in the world. Why do we go out and act like grouches like the world? We have been changed by Christ, so we have the God of hope that has filled me, it says in Romans 15, with joy and peace, and I abound in hope. I will not understand pessimistic, disgruntled Christians. I don't get that. Because I see the awesome deeds of God, verse 5, and I am filled with confidence and hope. Because verse 6, he has established the mountains by his strength, being clothed with power. 7, you who still the noise of the seas, the noise of the waves, and the torment of the people. They also who dwell in the farthest parts are afraid of your signs and make the outgoings of the morning and evening rejoice. The awesomeness of God, the mountains, the seas. That is something. Now, I, I got to be honest, I look at verse 6 and I see establish the mountains. And I have to be honest with you, I hate mountains. I hate them. I've gone out west a couple times, driven through the Rockies. I don't like mountains. I don't like the up, the down, the left, the right, the curves. I don't like them. When I'm driving through the mountains, I always stop and I think of the same thought. I think of 281 on the way to Defiance. I get on that road, I set my cruise control, and I go. I dislike mountains so much. You know that little valley thing about a mile or two outside of GM? I even hate that valley on 281. I just want flat, straight when I'm driving. I don't mind looking at the mountains. I don't want to go near them. I don't. I remember when we were going out west a couple years ago to Mexico, and I remember we were in New Mexico getting into the mountains, and I remember looking at a map saying, how am I going to get through the mountains without going through the mountains? There is no way to get through the mountains without going through the mountains. Why do I dislike the mountains? The mountains intimidate me. Why do the mountains intimidate me? They're unmoving. They're not changing. Now, don't take this point too far because I'm not talking in prayer. I can't move a mountain. That thing's going to stay there. I have to figure out a way to go around it or go over it. That's why God uses the analogy of being a mountain. You're not moving God. You need to figure out how you're going to deal with him. And so that mountain right there is established by God. And if God can establish that, if something can establish that unmovable mountain, how big is that being? that has established mountains by his strength, his power, verse 6. That's the awesome deeds we're talking about. Or what about the sea? Have you ever stood in front of the ocean there and you see the waves and the noise of it? As the translations say, the noise, the roaring, the pounding of the sea. And you realize how small you are. That's the awesome deeds that we're talking about that leads us to praise. It leads us to worship. Verse 8, people dwelling in the farthest parts are afraid of your signs. They see it. If you go back and you read, like in Joshua, when they're getting ready to come in and to uh, take over the promised land, the people of Jericho heard about the awesome deeds of God, of what he did with the Red Sea and what he did with... Um, the Egyptians, and they have basically stored themselves up in Jericho out of fear of the awesome deeds of God. This is what he does. Think about this. God wants to, us to always remember 
his power, and how awesome he is, his works of nature. So much so, you think about this, how often does God mention in the Bible the parting of the Red Sea? He brings it up all the time. We just read about it there um, in Psalm 66, this concept of God saying, I will even take care of the sea. Look at verse 6 of Psalm 66. He turned the sea into dry land. They went through the river on foot. There we will rejoice in him. He rules by his power forever. His eyes observe the nations. Do not let the rebellious exalt themselves. Selah. Verse 6, he turned the sea into dry land. This is such a big deal. And I don't even know how many times it's mentioned through Scripture. It is mentioned a lot. Moses wrote a song about it back in Exodus 15. But this is what's really neat about it. If you read in Revelation 15, God says we're still going to sing the song of Moses about this. Think about that. Through eternity, God wants us to still sing about him parting the Red Sea. That's pretty impressive. God says, if I'm going to play one of my cards to show you my power, it's going to be the Red Sea card that they crossed through on dry land. He took a body of water and split it. That's the awesomeness of God. And he says, I want you to sing about it thousands of years ago with Moses, and I want you to sing about it thousands of years into the future in Revelation for eternity. Never forget the power of God. Now, this is where it gets difficult for us. I like the terms macro-faith and micro-faith. And I think it goes back to my college days when I took macroeconomics and microeconomics. The idea of macroeconomics, big picture finance, microeconomics, small picture finance. Okay, here's the problem I see with us as Christians. We have macro faith. We have big picture faith. I believe Genesis 1-1, that God created the heavens and the earth. I believe he parted the Red Sea. I believe Jonah was swallowed by the fish. I believe Jesus rose from the dead. I believe those things. Macro faith. Micro faith? Oh, Lord, what am I going to do about my car? What do you mean? He can create something out of nothing, but he can't fix your head gasket? God up there in heaven is going, head gaskets, I'm not a mechanic, I don't know. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, and I'm looking at the checkbook going, I don't have enough for the bill. He's like, I don't know. Why is it that we can accept macro faith, huge, big picture things? I come to you, I teach out of numbers, and I say, Balaam's donkey, talk to him. You're like, oh, that's cool, I mark it. Then you come to me and say, James, I don't know what I'm going to do about work tomorrow. And I'm going to say, you need to pray. And you're like, pray? Oh, that's not going to work. The donkey can talk, but God can't move at your job. We need to understand the macro and the micro. He turned the sea into dry land. His deeds are awesome. Let's remember that. And his deeds are so powerful that it it affects us. Look at verse 3 of Psalm 66. Say to God, how awesome are your works. Through the greatness of your power, your enemies shall submit themselves to you. First off, that word for awesome we keep mentioning means terrible or fearful as well. Some translations say it that way. Because think about it. To God, my Father, He's awesome. If I didn't know God, it's terrible and fearful. There's this big, burly man that looks intimidating, but if that's your dad, you run to him. If it's a stranger, you run from him. How often do I look at the work of God and as his child I say awesome, but non-believers say terrible and fearful. Verse 3, through the greatness of your power, your enemies shall submit themselves to you. This is a deep verse. Enemies shall submit themselves to you. Kind of carries the idea of Philippians 2. It says, where every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The enemies will submit themselves. 
but it carries the idea that they don't necessarily do it willingly. Meaning people in hell acknowledge God is God and his power, but they're still rebelling in their hearts. That's why they're in hell. They may, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, but they're still not wanting him. We think of that phrase a lot of where the Bible talks about hell as being weeping and gnashing of teeth. I heard a teacher teach on this once and I've never forgotten. I still chew on it. It says at the end of Acts 7, when Stephen was martyred, that the Jews are so full of rage towards him that they were gnashing their teeth. See, we think of gnashing of teeth being pain, that these people in hell are in pain. This guy said, is it possible that they're gnashing their teeth because they're in hell and they're still angry at God? Yes, they submit. Yes, they acknowledge that he's Lord. They still don't want to have anything to do with him. There's an anger there still for all of eternity of what's going on. Let's pick up the pace here a little bit. Really from verses 9 through 13 now, if you're coming from a farming background, you'll love these verses. Because David now ends with this idea of God, you're awesome. And he sees it in creation. And he sees it in farm, in the crop cycle, if you will. Maybe this is a psalm that was written during harvest time. I don't know. I mean, I, I love that late June when you start driving by the wheat fields. And it is the amber waves of grain. Especially if it's a wheat field that doesn't have a single weed in it. And it's just all that beautiful color. Or you're driving by a hay field and you just start to smell a little bit of that. It's just got the purple flowers just starting to go. I almost see David sitting outside looking across the crops in Jerusalem saying, God, you're awesome. Nine, you visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain for so you have prepared it. I just want to stop here real quick. Water. We live on a planet where water is a necessity. Rain is a necessity. Rain is just so vitally important, but yet we can't control it in one bit. It's just complete other faith. Lord, you visit the earth. You water it. You rain over it. Ten. Your water, its ridges abundantly. You settle its furrows. You make it soft with showers. You bless its growth. You crown the year with your goodness and your paths drip with abundance. They drop on the pastures of the wilderness and the little hills rejoice on every side. The pastures are clothed with flocks. The valleys also are covered with grain. They shout for joy. They also sing. I just see David sitting back as he's writing this through the Spirit, praising him, praying, realizing his sins are forgiven, and him just saying, I'm satisfied in you, Lord. Looking out at your awesome deeds, he thinks about mountains, thinks about the sea, and he thinks about creation and nature. It's just a psalm of praise. It ties in so nicely to Psalm 66 as well. But Psalm 66 has one little middle section here of three verses that we have to address that is a little bit different than 65. We talked about being satisfied. That was a theme of verse 4 of Psalm 65. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your temple. Being satisfied. I love what Spurgeon says about being satisfied. We are full and we forget God. Satisfied with earth, we're content to do without heaven. That's a danger. To be satisfied with earth, we're content to do without heaven. If you look through the Old Testament, Israel never handled blessings well. When they became satisfied, they got themselves in trouble. Satisfaction in the Lord is vitally important. Satisfaction in this earth is dangerous. Very dangerous. And this is where Psalm 66 finishes with satisfaction, but it gets to us at a different point. Take a look at verse 12. Look at the ending of 66. You brought us out to rich fulfillment 
some of your translations, to a wealthy place, to great abundance, satisfaction. But how did we get to satisfaction in verse 12? Rewind to verse 10. For you, O God, have tested us. You have refined us as silver is refined. You brought us into the net. You laid affliction on our backs. You have caused men to ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water, but you have brought us out to rich fulfillment. So, Lord, you brought me to fulfillment and satisfaction, but look at the way that I got there. Verse 10, you tested us. No one likes to be tested. It creates anxiety. It creates nervousness. I had to do a time test the other day for something online, and I sat down, I got ready to start it, and I hit the button to start the test, and it says, you had one hour to complete it. Immediate anxiety. An hour? What I, you know, just what if I can't? What if I lose power? It just tests. But God says, listen, I'm going to test you to bring you to fulfillment. Now, let me give you the main verse on this, and then we'll go back and break this down real quick. Look at James 1.12. You don't need to turn there. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. There is a crown given to us that get through tests. Test leads us to rewards. Test leads us to something deeper in the Lord. So look at the test here, verse 10. It's a test. You have refined us as silver is refined. Who wants to be refined? How do you refine something? You throw it in the fire and you turn up the heat. You burn off anything that's not good. That doesn't sound pleasant. Verse 11, you brought us into a net. Who wants to be in a net? Verse 11, you've laid affliction on our backs. Verse 12, you've caused men to ride over our heads. People are walking over me. You're taking me through fire and you're taking me through water. God says, yeah. And you'll come out fulfilled. Because the testing of your faith produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. And hope does not disappoint. Look at how it all comes back together. I want hope. I want fulfillment. God says, Great. I have to take you through some tests. i got to burn off the refining things that need done. I need to throw you in a net for a while so you realize I'm the only one that can make you escape. I need to throw some affliction on your back for you to trust me. I need you to realize people are going to walk all over you. And I need you to go through the fire and the water. But at the end, verse 12, I'll bring you out to rich fulfillment. Can you trust me? Oh, wow, Lord. Do I want to be satisfied with earth? And be content without heaven? No, Lord, I want you. I don't want to go through the test, so what do I do? Well, now we're back to Psalm 65. Cause me to approach you, Lord. Cause me to want you. Because this is not what I want. What's the conclusion of this? Verse 16 of Psalm 66. Come and hear all you who fear God. Now declare what he has done for my soul. I just want to tell people what you've done, Lord. And what you've done for my, very important there, verse 16, soul. How often do we want to say to everybody, let me show you how good my God is. I'll show you how good my God is through my car, through my house, through my beautiful wife, through my physical prowess, through my job and my bank account. I will show you how good my God is through every blessing he's given me. What happens if you don't have those things? What happens if you're laying in bed an invalid? You can still say, verse 16, I will declare what he has done for my soul. Because he's forgiven my sins and he's made me right in him. That's what I'm satisfied in. My sins are forgiven. I am satisfied that my soul is right with the Lord. So therefore, that's why I can say, just like Job, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's why I can say like Job, though he slay me, yet I will still praise him. Because my soul is right with the Lord. Ends us with verse 20. Blessed be God, 
who has not turned away my prayer, nor his mercy from me. God, through your mercy, you hear my prayer. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for being a God that fulfills. Let us have our fulfillment in you. Let us have our joy in you. Let us have our peace in you. Let us have our hope in you. And let nothing on this earth satisfy us but more of you. Draw us closer to you. In your name, amen. In way of announcements, Christmas Eve service, 24th at 4.30. Hope you can make it out to that. We'll also be live streaming that. So you can watch that uh, online on the Facebook or on YouTube. And if you didn't get a chance to make it out to the Christmas program yesterday, the kids did an amazing job. God was glorified. That should be available on the church YouTube channel to watch it if you want. Or on the Facebook, you can go back and watch those as well. But Christmas Eve coming up 4.30 on the 24th. Please also know we are doing Angel Tree this year. We are doing it differently. We're focusing on, on needs um, if you want to get involved with that, we have some families that we're going to try to bless in the name of Jesus. You can make a donation to that if you want, or if you want more information, you can see Pat. But we're really trying to stop and say, listen, what can we do to help this family in the situation they're in right now and meet those needs? And not meet those needs so that way it frees up more money to get once, but to stop and say, we want to, in the name of Jesus, represent help to you and take you deeper here and help you out through life. Our daily breads are available back there. Uh, if you are watching online, you want one sent to you, we can send one to you, let me know. And that means since the old our daily breads are done, you can bring them back in. Donna collects them for love packages. You can set all that stuff in the kitchen. Any old Christian material you have, bring those that set that in the kitchen. That will be sent out and blessed to other people as well. A couple other quick things here. Signature ad campaign for Right to Life. If you want to take a stand for life, that you can uh, sign that uh, ad campaign. It's out there in the foyer. Also, Salvation Army bell ringers. We still got some days left. If you want to get involved in that ministry, great opportunity to represent the Lord. You can talk to Andy Carpenter about that if you have questions, but the sign-up sheet is back there, and you can get involved with that ministry. And flowers to my right and flowers to my left are in memory of Patty Zerberg's son, Eric, who passed away last week unexpectedly, and the flowers are in memory of him as well with that. So keep Patty in prayer for the God of comfort to be with her. Hey, you guys have a good week. God bless. We'll catch you face-to-face, or we'll catch you online here, and uh, go out and be satisfied in the Lord. Take care and God bless.